This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, I'm Blake Chastain, and this is Powers and Principalities. This show focuses on the systems and institutions that prop up white evangelical power and influence in America and the world. Season one is focused on white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. This is episode seven. My guest today is Bradley Onishi. Brad is an associate professor of religion at Skidmore College and co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. And in this episode, we answer your questions about white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. We fielded questions from Facebook, Twitter, and email and answered them all on air. And let me tell you, you all had some great questions. I really enjoyed this conversation, and if you enjoyed this show, you'll definitely enjoy Straight White American Jesus, so be sure to check that out as well. You'll find links to that show in the show notes. If you'd like to support this show, please do so by telling people about it, leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, and by signing up for a subscription to my Substack newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Listeners can get 25% off a paid subscription by visiting the link in the show notes. If I received around 800 subscribers, I could dedicate more time, even full time, to bringing you this content and expanding my coverage. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain and on Instagram at brchastain underscore. Without further ado, let's get to this conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Powers and Principalities. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Brad Onishi, who is one of the hosts of Straight White American Jesus and Associate Professor of Religion at Skidmore College. Brad, welcome to the show. Blake, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and, and really excited to uh, answer some of these questions sent in. They're great questions. So Yeah, yeah. So the, the focus of the show is actually going to be uh, some audience questions. My producer, uh, Jake Lewis, uh, had this great idea of working into this season, actually having um, fielding some questions from the audience about different things that, that, that they might want to get answers for. And I immediately thought of you as a conversation partner in this because your show uh, really covers a lot of the same ground as this one, which you've, you've talked to a lot of the same people that I have. Um, you have this academic training and these connections to these people that, um, that have been covering these things for years. And that's one of the focuses of this show is just sort of elevating these things that have been um, these criticisms and these points of view that, that have been there in academia for, in many cases, decades but haven't made it to a broader audience. Um, so I'm mm -hmm. super excited to go through that. I actually have a couple of questions uh, for you just as, as a guest here for a minute before we dive into these, these audience questions. So yeah, sure. Brad, we, we are barreling toward the 2020 election. I mean, it's impossible to feel like we've got a grasp on this news cycle 
within the last week, Trump has contracted COVID. He left the hospital. All of these events that I can't even contextualize properly have happened. And it's all in the midst of this pandemic. Given the focus of both of our shows on things like white evangelicalism and its relationship to power and Christian nationalism, do you think that a broad understanding of these topics has improved at all since 2016? Yes and no, I guess is is maybe the answer. Um, yes, it's that we have so many resources by so many amazing folks. So obviously your work, Blake, Exvangelical and now Powers and Principalities has been a huge part of that. When 2016 happened, a lot of great minds decided they were going to dedicate their, their time and energy to figuring this out. So you've talked to uh, Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead in their book, Taking America Back for God, right? Yeah. That's an incredible, that's an incredible resource. Catherine Stewart wrote The Power That's an incredible resource. Sarah Posner wrote Unholy. That's an incredible resource. Ann Nelson wrote Shadow Network. Uh, you know, Dave, David Gushy has a new book. I mean, uh, and Robert Jones has an, I mean, there's a whole industry now to understanding these things. And I think the op-eds and the podcasts and the books are providing uh, resources for folks that want to understand it, they can. So that's one. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'll be honest, Blake, I, I've been pretty disappointed with, um, and I'm going to sound like some of the folks we cover here, so you're going to have to excuse me, but <laughs> that's okay. I'm, I've been pretty frustrated with the main the mainstream media. And I, I as soon as I said, I'm like, oh, my God, I sound like I'm on Fox News. Or I'm in, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. But here's what here's what I mean by that is um, Trump. Trump refuses to uh, uh, guarantee a, a peaceful transfer of power. Mm -hmm. And I, as soon as the debate's over, George Stephanopoulos and Martha Raddatz are talking about how uh, both guys were arguing. It was really kind of a, a, a gutter punch sort of uh, uh, a brawl out there. Am I right? And I'm thinking the only headline here for the first however many segments should be that the sitting president has not guaranteed a peaceful transfer of power. It happened again last night. Mike Pence got asked the question. He did not answer it in a straightforward way. Yep. He dodged it. And again, it's a little bit of, well, who do you guys think won? Who won the debate? And I don't know what's going to happen in 20-something-odd days, but I know that we will look back if Trump wins and, and Pence win and things continue to barrel down the, the, the path they're going, we will look back on nights like those and just shake our head. Like, those yeah. are moments that we learned nothing from the 2016 Hillary Clinton New York Times FBI stories, all of the Clinton Foundation, whatever that was, mm -hmm. all of the, the ways the media just tried to both sides it. We have, we have sacrificed truth for balance. And I think there's a lot of folks out there that have done a lot of hard work to figure out how white evangelicalism, Christian nationalism, and the Trump presidency have all been bonded together. Unfortunately, many of our media outlets seem as gullible and ripe as ever for not understanding the moment we're in and, and what we're in for in terms of uh, creeping fascism, authoritarianism, and, uh, and Christian nationalism. Right. Yeah. And you, you anticipated my other question, which was the way in which mainstream media has, has covered these things. And I, I feel similarly. It is surprising to see the same sort of missteps, the same sort of mistakes happening 
And it's incredible that we've reached this point where there's still this particular blind spot, except for within these sort of wonky things, like, like the things that you and I cover. (laughs) And it's sort of, it's sort of, it's sort of wild to, to be in that place because I'm, I'm just still sort of surprised that both the rhetorical strategies as well as the policy goals of people that are trying to enact Christian nationalist type goals, how, how that escapes notice. It, yeah. It's sort of, it's, it's baffling to me. <laughs> well, I mean, and like, so today we, we, we get the story that the FBI intercepted a group of men tr- trying to kidnap the, the governor of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's right. What were they, what were they called when, when the headlines broke, they were called militia. What would happen if half a dozen Muslims or half a dozen people associated with black lives matter tried to kidnap a governor. You know what we'd be talking about? You know what would be happening? Terrorism. Terrorism, 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 terrorism. It would be all on our news, in our feeds, our timelines. We'd be getting text messages. There'd probably be helicopters flying around both our houses right now just because <laughs> there'd be helicopters everywhere because it would be, the country would be on full high alert. And right. yet half a dozen white dudes, part of the Liberate Michigan crew, uh, are planning to uh, kidnap and seemingly put on trial and execute the governor of Michigan, and they're just a, a militia. Yeah. I, that might be a minor example, Blake, and it, it may not be all that that sort of big in, in the, the, the 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 grand scheme of this. But to me, it's just one more example of of how these things work. I'll give you another one. The other day, um, the, the Biden campaign, after Trump's COVID diagnosis and debacle and timeline uh, lack of transparency, the Biden campaigns asked about his COVID test. And they gave some answers. Um, and the, 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 the headline in the New York Times is Biden campaign cagey about, about the, 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 the VPs or the former VPs health. Mm-hmm. Are you serious? I mean, in a, <laughs> where, in a week where the president of the United States would not give a straight answer about when he got COVID, who he had infected, when he knew about it, how many people in the, in the inner circle had been infected when they were going to public events. Mm-hmm. This is our headline from the paper of record. It's 2016 all over again. I mean, come on. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. The fact that a militia we know to better classify as a Christian terrorist plot to kidnap an active governor of a United States state, to consider that a minor story, that just puts into perspective what we've become acclimated to in the last few years, which is just disheartening and and sort of and, and troubling in, in a lot of ways um but it, it does indicate the the ways in which white christian privilege continues to manifest even in a society which is ostensibly post-christian and and all of those things um and still somehow makes its way into the editorial guidelines of major yep. major news outlets and things like that um totally agree yeah totally agree yeah well um, we could commiserate <laughs> about that all day long, but I think that we should start to work through some of these questions that we got from uh, audience questions. I initially had put the the call out a couple of weeks ago for there to be voice memos and things like that, but that didn't quite pan out. So we went ahead and extended the call to different parts of our social media social media platforms and things like that. So uh, I've sent these to you. 
uh, in advance just so that we we both have them. Um, I'll go ahead and, and yep. sort of acknowledge where they come from, but then we'll we'll just we'll just uh, use these as prompts and sort sort of talk through them. I've got a handful from the Facebook the Exvangelical Facebook group um, where I posted this. Mm-hmm. And the first one is, how does learned narcissism play a role for those who are part of a dominant subcultures? And how can advocates for change confront the narcissistic, quote, default way of thinking and viewing what's working or not working in our society? That's a pretty complex question for the first one, but let's give it a shot. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, there's no warm up. um, That's for sure. Um, You know, but I'll just jump in, Blake. uh, quickly and say, you know, as I was thinking about this question, I would say that there are certainly narcissists in our midst. Uh, I, I think that the president is a narcissist and there are others we could point to. I also think though, that focusing on the exceptionalism of nars- of the narcissist may give a little bit of a way out for everyone else in the group. And what I mean by that is I think if we focus on the narcissist, what we what we don't see is that in the dominant subcultures, in the white Christian subculture of the United States, many folks are not narcissists. They're just privileged. Mm. They're incredibly privileged. Yeah. So are they are they just flaming out and out narcissists? I don't think so. But do they go to bed comfy in their privilege? And do they want to lose that privilege? No. Yes, there are narcissists leading the bunch, and we could point to some of them uh, within the Christian world or within the evangelical world or, or whatever it may be. But I don't want us to take our eye off the rank and file folks who are uh, simply enjoying privilege, don't want it to be upset, don't want to give it up, and see attacks on their faith or on their way of life as attacks on their faith and their way of life rather than attacks on their privilege and uh, the ways that they are leveraging it, society. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure I would call that learned narcissism, but I'm I I don't know. I mean, what do you think? What do you what do you, what do you take away from that? I do think you're right in that the the rank and file are are hard to dismiss in that regard, and that does anticipate some of the some of the additional questions that that we have in the queue here. A, a degree of the the narcissism, and I will say that since reading it, Kristen Cobus Dumay, who I believe we both spoken to and read her wonderful book, Jesus and John Wayne, it's just sort of staying present in my mind ever since having read it. And I do think that white evangelicalism and the sorts of political alliances that it's formed have crystallized that sort of narcissism. I'm like you, I I can't necessarily dismiss the people who may not have a leadership position or may not think so highly of themselves but still don't want to be made to feel even uncomfortable, not even yeah. not even having their, their privilege really questioned, but just being made to feel uncomfortable. That's a broader discussion regarding white fragility and that sort of thing, especially for white people. But that is, I think, one thing. And one of the ways in which, despite conservative media's projection otherwise, it's sort of coddled the people that are the recipients of that media. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense. And and don't get me wrong, uh, there are plenty of narcissists uh, in our midst and, and in that Christian uh, uh, cosmos that, that Kristen Kobe, Kobe's Dume explores in Jesus and John Wayne. I, I get 
I don't want to get us to the point where enjoying the comforts of being a man in a patriarchal society or enjoying the comforts of being a white person in a, in a white supremacist society mm -hmm. mean you're a narcissist. I think, I think, and I, I say that not because I want to let people off the hook, but because I don't, I don't want to let them off the hook. Right. right. I want to, I, I want, I want to show that there's a lot of ordinary banal comfort and privilege that people enjoy that doesn't rise to the level of the, the um the raging narcissist like we see in someone like donald i mean donald trump is a malignant narcissist mm -hmm. he has no shit he has no shame he has no ability for reflection no ability for empathy i just don't think 99 of people are like that i do think 99 of people are very very interested in protecting their comfort and their privilege and, and as you're saying don't want it disrupted so yeah um anyway yeah yeah the other question that this sort of dovetails into is one that says also from the Facebook group, do you agree that white American boomer voters, even the nuns in this category have a mild default tolerance, which is in question marks toward Christian nationalism and their worldview. And this makes me think of Perry and Whitehead's useful sort of framework that they have of Christian nationalists, ambassadors, accommodators, resistors, and rejectors. And this is, this is what made me think of the accommodators does that resonate with you? What do you think about this question and that sort of ambivalence or tolerance for Christian nationalism? Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm exactly with you on that. I think there, I you know, anecdotally, I know a lot of white American boomers who don't go to church, they don't pray, they don't read the Bible, but you ask them about the good Lord and how He has blessed this country, and they're all about it, mm -hmm. and that leads to that 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 sort of feeds into how they vote and how they think about the country's narrative, the country identity and so they're very much accommodators and it, it's another it's another great example of how according to perry and white christian nationalism does not map on to religiosity it doesn't mean you pray a lot doesn't mean you read the bible a lot doesn't mean you go to church a lot it means you take on this identity mm -hmm. loosely and so uh i think there's a lot and and so th the question includes uh the nuns and this is going to be a weird thing to say but I think you can even be a person who says, I'm a nun, I don't necessarily identify as Christian, but all of the privileges of being a white boomer mean that you're benefiting pretty pretty heavily from the white Christian nationalist framework, right? One of the ways I like to put it is, white Christian nationalism is the no shoes, no shirt sign. If you are Christian and white, you can come in and shop anytime you want, and we might even give you the, the stuff. If you are uh, if you are Christian but not white, all right, that's good. We like that, right? We can work with that. That means you might be civil and docile in ways that will Christian nationalism to continue. If you if you are white but not Christian, you're still okay. And I think you actually might be better off in many cases than the black or person of color who is a Christian mm -hmm. because your whiteness is, is powerful in this country in terms of privilege. And so even if I'm a nun, I'm a boomer who's a nun and I'm not necessarily committed to my atheism or my humanism or whatever it is it means for me to be a nun. I'm just somebody who doesn't really care about religion. Mm -hmm. I probably still love the 4th of July and Thanksgiving in ways that they feed into a certain story, a certain narrative. And whether or not that leads to excitement about Christian nationalism is one thing, but does it lead to indifference and complicity? For sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, 
you know, there is a, a, a mild default is a great, whoever asked the question, put it really well, mild default. Yeah. That's a great question. If you, if you're privileged, the default is great. Leave it as it is. Why are we going to mess <laughs> up? Why, why are we going to mess with it? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I don't have any, any other additions to that. That was very well said. The other thing it made me think of is, is at least when in my sort of church history classes, for me, this sort of thing, um, and maybe this resonates with you in your past as an evangelical as well, this, these sorts of things were initially sort of represented as civil religion. And exactly. at least for my, for my professors, that was seen as like a lower form of faith. However, it is something that is privileged socially, uh, which is which is is very very interesting, especially in the context of t- everything we've seen and witnessed and experienced since 2016 in particular. Well, and, and think so. If we if we go back to the Black Christian or or the Asian American Christian, right? I mean, let's just th- let's just take the Black Christian. There are so many Black churches that, um, in my mind, rightfully so are uh, have very complex relationships complicated relationships with holidays like fourth of july right or um, there's a lot of americans who who may be christian but for whom thanksgiving is not necessarily a holiday that they celebrate unabashedly because of the stories and events that are included in there but american civil religion the american idea of it being a chosen nation an exceptional place the high holy days of this nation Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas. So if you're if you're the person of color or the black, if you're the black uh, or indigenous person, and you think about Thanksgiving and the Fourth of July, even if you're a Christian, those holidays might be really complicated for you. Right, and that means you might disrupt things. You might you might say things about those holidays that kind of disrupt the the nice standard default of Americanism and and Americana. If you're a white person and you're a boomer, you're 60 years old, you're 70 years old, uh, I, I have to, I'm, I'm, I may be getting the boomer ages wrong there, but just hang with me. If you're a white boomer and you're not religious, you don't go to church, you don't read the Bible, you're somebody that you as an, a former evangelical in college and, and your church history professor looks down on is not a, not a real person of faith. But look, you, you celebrate Fourth of July. You love Thanksgiving. You're all about this. Guess what? You're not disrupting anything. You're not messing up the status quo, so you're easy. You're easier to deal with for the white Christian nationalists, right? You're easier because you're you're less disruptive. You're more civil. I always tell people in my classes, like civil religion is about being. You know, you ever had to go to to like an ex boyfriend, an ex girlfriend, or or just an ex an ex couple, and and you have to tell them separately, like, hey, we're gonna have dinner because it's Jennifer's birthday. Just be civil, okay? <laughs> just be right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what civil religion is just be civil. Don't talk about genocide and thanks and Thanksgiving. Don't talk about how Fourth of July doesn't include the black slave. Okay, just be civil. Let it go. Well, if you're a white person and you're not religious, you're likely to do that. If you're a black person and you are religious, you're likely not to do that. So of course, there's a mild default for the white, white boomer in my mind. Yeah, yeah, very well said, and that was a very very good question from the group. The next one moving on here is another good one here is that it seems like Christian nationalism has been building in evangelicalism for decades, since the 50s maybe, and evangelicals have made strong headway, particularly within this administration, the Trump administration. If Trump is defeated in November, 
where would evangelicals go from here? A lot of their younger members fled in droves, which, which is true. How would white evangelicalism reinvent itself to try to attract younger members? The final question here is, is white Christian nationalism even appealing to younger evangelicals? There was actually a, a piece sort of a, that addressed that just today. The overall thrust of this question, which is very good, is what would evangelicals do if they face a political defeat in November? Uh, so I don't think they need to reinvent themselves because, you know, Blake, you talk a lot about this and Dan and I talk a lot about it. Locals uh, are the absolute maestros of being simultaneously in power and martyrs. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, um, so, look, I think we saw it last night. Mike Pence is on the stage. He's giving his very calm, mansplaining sort of uh, answers uh, talking over both the moderator and uh, and Senator Harris, mm -hmm. they they're, they're going to go right back to who they were when Barack Obama was president, agitating, whining, complaining because they're the martyrs who are being attacked and their culture and their faith is being, in their minds, put out of the public square. Th this is a play. They're they're actually more comfortable as the opposition than they are being in power because the the whole the whole thing is built on martyrdom. The whole thing is built on you're taking away. What, what I take to be the heart of my country's faith and culture. So I'm going to get out here and tea party it up. I'm going to get out here and talk about how you're destroying faith in public schools. I'm going to get out here and say, uh, you know, trans bathroom bills are destroying the country, blah, 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 blah. They, they have this. They're good. They, they don't need to reinvent any of that. I do not think white people are attracting younger people. I do not think that younger people in the evangelical church are going to become more liberal and stay. Blake, I, I would love your opinion on this. My take is this. When we were 20, there was always somebody saying, hey, new generation of evangelicals, Brian McLaren, someone else, uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this different. Social justice, more compassion, more inclusion, we're going to do it. And you know what ends up happening every time that that younger generation tries that? They get excised from the movement. They're not allowed. They're not allowed to stay. Absolutely. I mean, is that going to is that going to change, Blake? I mean, do you think that there's anything different now? I don't really see that as as a possibility. I think that the structure of white evangelicalism has gotten further and further constrictive over time, uh, and there's there's just so many examples, even from the last few years. You look at evangelical organizations like the InterVarsity Press, who around 2014. Um, forced anyone who was either themselves queer or affirming of LGBTQ plus Christians to leave the organization because they had to sign uh, a statement of faith. You see the ways in which going back to the 80s, the conservative resurgence of the Southern Baptist Convention, like all of these things over time, the accepted level of orthodoxy has gotten smaller and smaller. And I do see them being successful in creating people to continue to carry their banner. And I also worry about their ability to maintain minority rule uh, through all manner of legislative uh, shenanigans. <laughs> uh, I mean, from installing Amy Coney Barrett and completely disregarding all of the supposed precedent that they set with blocking Merrick Garland um, and all of the comments that they said in regards to that, Lindsey Graham doesn't 
care at all. Not that he's like distinctly evangelical, but he is within the GOP establishment. It's hard for me to see um, them really changing their tactics because they so far have been successful. And I guess I've gone down the rabbit hole in regards to this, as I'm sure you sort of feel this way too, of just being further convinced of, of the exchange that they've made from the tenets of their faith for grasping at power. Yeah. I don't see that changing. I see them continuing to appeal to a certain type of person who is white or male or is, or has been convinced that, that that is the particular God given, you know, world order that white men should be at the top uh, and white Christian men in particular. It's hard for me to be optimistic about this because they, they don't want to be reformed. They've just proven that time and again. And that is part of what, you know, interests me as a podcaster uh, is why, you know, (laughs) and what, and they leave destruction in their wake. But as long as they maintain power, that continues to be the important thing. Um, (laughs) So, yep, I agree. I I agree. And, And the demographic will continue to get smaller. And I think as the demographic gets smaller, the shenanigans will continue to rise. I mean, we saw today Mike Lee, senator from Utah, tweeting that democracy is not necessarily the best thing for humanity. Mm-hmm. To me, that was a that was a preamble to as numbers get smaller and our majorities are less and less tenable, we will resort to advocating for authoritarianism, for fascism, for whatever we need to, because mm-hmm. the, the goal is not anything but to retain power. And, I, you know, I think we've both said that and I think we both have discovered that in our various uh, rabbit hole, you know, uh, studies and explorations. And, and to me, that's just that's how it works here. And democracy is is not something that they prize. It's power. So, right. It's troubling. And I, I wish I could be more optimistic about it. But that's sort of where I am a few weeks out from this election. <laughs> yeah. Another question actually comes from someone uh, who doesn't live in the U.S. and sort of is looking at, at this at this manifestation um, from an outside perspective. That's what's informing this question, which is, is the American white Christianity really about Christianity, or is it merely a kind of national religion or cult, which becomes more and more distant from all other Christianities? This person sees it as highly disturbing, uh, when they first saw a Bible that had things like stars and stripes, they were super confused. <laughs> Again, they they continue and say, "How do you stop something like that?" Um, it's uh, yeah. Uh, so, as viewing this from an external foreign perspective, or even as someone who is outside of Christianity here in America, how would you explain these phenomenons to phenomena uh, to people outside of it? I- I, I first started to understand this when I moved to the UK in my early to mid twenties. And that's really when I started to deconstruct and it, it really struck me there how much uh, the, the language of faith and the language of, of God, the language of one nation under God is to our country's fabric and our DNA. It also struck me how privileged uh, white Christians are here. And so, yes, I mean, the short answer is, 
white Christianity in this country is imbricated in nationalism. It is. Uh, that, that goes for white Catholics. It goes for white mainline Protestants. Across the board, they are more likely to uh, vote in certain ways when it comes to immigration, have certain ideas about race, have certain ideas about refugees, and so on and so forth. So um, I think it is there. Um, uh, there's no denying that, that from afar, uh, we have uh, a country that is supposed to be one of the, the, the foremost secular democracies in the world, and yet um, it, the national identity is tied up strictly with Christianity. I mean, you, Blake, about civil religion. We certainly have a civil religion in this country, right? If, mm-hmm. if you are not a monotheist who celebrate certain holidays in certain ways, if you don't pray, if you don't acknowledge one nation under God, uh, if you don't participate in those ceremonies and rituals, whether that is the Fourth of July or Thanksgiving, whether that is um, the way that you, um, you you think about how we should start a high school football game, uh, the ways that you think that our president should should be a person of faith. I mean, in one sense, I'm really glad that Biden has pushed so hard against this idea that the Republicans are the only party of faith. Yeah. On the other hand, right there, there's a danger that I mean, there, the DNC was almost. Christian. I mean, you know, Biden was talking about his Catholicism, Senator Coons, um, Cory Booker. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I think that reclaiming the, the mantle of faith from the Republicans is, is something that's important, but it speaks to the that religion is so built into our culture. I mean, if Bernie Sanders were the, were the nominee, do you know what we would be hearing right now? 24-7, atheist Marxism, communism trying to destroy your life. And we, we have it with Joe Biden and the guy goes to mass every Sunday. What would it be like if an atheist Jew was the nominee for the DNC? So anyway, in answer to this question, I think the short answer is yes. Um, I, I, if I may, Blake, I'll give you one answer and then I'll shut up, I promise. Um, I grew up in, in, in Southern California in what was ostensible church. Quakers are not supposed to be nationalistic. We're supposed to be the last thing you would ever think about being nationalistic. In the 19, uh, after World War One, the 19 teens, the church that I eventually became part of, somebody brought in an American flag to the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And one of the elders stood up, threw the flag outside on the ground and said, we do not mix the flags of the nation with the worship of our God. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a hundred years later, and uh, 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 about a year ago, somebody relayed to me that at my old church, the guy who was had been there since the church, uh, since he was a kid, he'd been there 50, 60 years, the guy that fixes the, the, the bus when it breaks down for the church, runs the soundboard, mm-hmm. always working behind the scenes to make things go, that kind of guy, right? Right. Of church. He never went back. The guy had been at that church 60 years. What it, is this it didn't always it wasn't always like it is now that there were ways that some of this was a little more separate and there was a little bit more consciousness of the separation of the flag um and the bible that is just not true anymore Uh, and i think that's unfortunate yeah that's a powerful anecdote and um it's emblematic of many people's relationship to faith and patriotism here in the united states I want to close out the the section from the Facebook group, which with one that I think is really gets to the point. They ask, can Christian nationalism really be separated from white evangelicalism or is it really the marrow of white evangelicalism? 
It, it, uh, so I'll, I'm going to go back to um, an interview I did with Randall Balmer for our series, Wave. We did a series, The Orange Wave, uh, History of the Christian Right mm -hmm. since 1960. And, uh, and our first interview was with Randall Balmer, who's a professor at Dartmouth. He himself is an evangelical. He's in his 70s. And one of the things that if you read Randall Balmer, if you listen to the interview I did with him, he does a great job of showing you that Christian nationalism was not always synonymous with white evangelicalism. That if you go to the 19th century, there were white evangelicals who were reform-minded. Some of them we might even call fighting for women's suffrage, fighting for abolition, fighting for a more inclusive and equal society. Um, did they still uh, experience a, a white Christian privilege in this country? Sure. But was their ethos about nationalism and power? Not necessarily. It was in some sense, some very strong sense, fighting for the marginalized. And that continued. You know, one of the things Randall Balmer and I talked about in that interview is Jimmy Carter just turned 96. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter's an evangelical. He's 96 years old. He's from Georgia. He's a Southern Baptist. And when he was president, he appointed of color at, to and more people of color, more women to the federal uh, bench than anyone before him. He um, was a champion for so many causes related to um, women's rights and, and others. Jimmy Carter is what evangelicalism could have been, right? Yeah. Um, and yet uh, it has fused with this with nationalism. And Randall Balmer said, and this is not me, Randall Balmer says at the end of that interview, a guy who's been an evangelical his whole life still maintains that identity. He says, I don't think there's anywhere to go from here. After the 2016 election, I think we have to admit to start over because there's no separating Christian nationalism from evangelicalism at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a difficult thing. I mean, people wrap their entire identities around their faith and that becomes painful when it's a sense of betrayal uh, over this sort of thing. And I think at this point it is really hard for me and even like engaging with, with ideas like um, those that, that have been put forth by Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry in their book about Christian nationalism, they're sociologists. And so they, they distinguish between Christian nationalism and white evangelicalism because definitions are super important in that field. And you have to be precise with, with your words and what you're trying to study. It's hard, like with white evangelicalism, I think it's one of the reasons why mainstream media falls down in its coverage of it and its understanding of it is that it, it tries, and many of the leaders encourage this sort of obfuscation and like trying to make it vague and not monolithic and and all of those things can be true but a lot of the things that have become common are things like the consumer culture uh, like a, a lot of the theological beliefs around uh, complementarianism uh, related to gender and the unexamined uh, history of white supremacy and evangelicalism all of these things it takes a lot of work and if you use a cultural lens like Kristen Cobus Dumay does and says this is a white evangelicalism, you get one result. If you use a theological lens like the um, the Bebbington quadrilateral, um, you're going to get a different result when you talk about white evangelicalism. Um, the Bebbington quadrilateral is like evangelicalism is defined by its relation to what biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and a fourth one that I can't remember right now. Um, <laughs> is it end times? Is that what is that the fourth one? 
mm-hmm. but but nonetheless, like you're you're gonna get different uh, a different result. But within the lived reality of people in the United States, in particular, it's really hard to find an evangelicalism that is not related in some way to Christian nationalism. There are groups that are trying to move that needle. Uh, Vote Common Good is one example of of someone working, uh, of a group working within evangelicalism in order to move people to more progressive political causes. But damn, do they have their work cut out for them. Yep. That to me is, um, it's a difficult thing to, to separate. Um, and yeah. it, I, I think it, it's got far more of the marrow than they think. Uh, and that's, that's just the, it's what I would appreciate even from evangelicals who still live in it is just some honesty around that <laughs> yeah. at this yep. stage. Yep. So <laughs> I agree. I agree. We have, uh, some other questions that we fielded from Twitter um, one is from Cheerful Nerd on Twitter, which was, what's the <laughs> best way to get around the mental wall people have that won't allow them to process any info that contradicts their Christian nationalist worldview? Wow, that's a really good question to fit into 280 characters. <laughs> <laughs> I get asked this, something like this question a lot, and 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 so I, I'm probably going to throw it to you, Blake, sooner than later. I guess I can tell you what will not work. And what will we'll, we'll now work, because I have done this many times to my chagrin, is engaging them on Facebook, posting articles, posting facts, posting data, uh, trying to win a battle on social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, wherever you do that, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, that's not going to work. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there's not openings for uh, dialogue, but those those openings are not going to come through um, a certain just head-to-head intellectual battle. You know, one of the things I talk to my students a lot about is logos, pathos, ethos. Yeah, logos is is logic and 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 it sort of uh, more intellectual sort of coherency. Pathos is, of course, more emotional. And the way I've started to think about this, Blake, and I, I'm curious if you have maybe just a better understanding of this than I do, is I've really got to rely on those. So when I'm with family members and friends who seem to be in this space, my strategy now is wait for a moment of reflection and a moment where they're feeling something. So one example is when Trump held up the the, fo- the Bible in the photo op, I had some family and friends who are even, that was the first time that they signaled in subtle ways that they were a little bit dismayed. And that was a moment where I could I could ask a little bit. So how did that make you feel? Like why is that upset you? You know why is that not um, something that you approve of? And once we get into that sort of space, then maybe I can start with my facts or my data or my whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to lead. I'm not going to lead with that. I got to wait for that emotional opening, and then go. And and you might be saying, well, how do I get them emotional opening part? And I'm not really sure. Um, I think those things can come in various places and through various forms. Um, but I, 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 what I do know is frontal logos logic attack is not going to get you anywhere anyway. Yeah. Um, that may not yeah. be a very good answer, Blake. You, you might have. No, I think you actually, I, I think that that can often be the best sort of tactic to take. You know, I'm, I'm going to fall back on a cliche, but you know, 
a lot of evangelicalism is and the things that it sort of teaches us is about things like relationships. A lot of that is predicated on an individual relationship, whether that's a familial relationship or you're friends with this person. A lot of times you're not going to convince them. You're not going to begin to get them to start to think about things um, unless you have that sort of personal connection. David Dark on Twitter, he put it very succinctly once. He said, who gave you permission to think? Like he was asking people to say, respond to him and say like which which people in your life which which authors that sort of thing and I'll I'll share my own sort of personal anecdote I was in grad school I took this class called uh, moral reform in America and I didn't know at the time um, but it played this huge role in sort of my being able to dismantle some of the cultural things that I had been taught at my Christian college this was in grad school um, at my Christ- Christian college um, and just sort of within the mil- the milieu of, of evangelicalism. And one of the books that was assigned was this book called Why Marriage by George Chauncey. And this was prior to marriage equality. Um, George Chauncey is a professor, I believe, at the University of Chicago, uh, who's gay. And it was this really sort of very pathos-oriented discussion about why marriage equality was important to the LGBTQ community. And I already had begun this process of wrestling with the clobber verses that evangelicals like to trot out when they disapprove or condemn queer people. But it was reading that book and sort of the way in which it connected with me and the, the way when I, when I came out of reading that book, it was like, how would it feel if I was in that position and say, as a straight person, you've never questioned the fact that you're straight. Why would you ever question your, your urges or your attractions? But queer people are forced to do that by society. And to me that as a person, and that's a a white man that like, there are a number of different privileges that I don't have to examine because I'm not forced to by society. And I think one of the things going back to Christian nationalist privilege and things like that is sometimes you just have to be jolted. And a lot of times that doesn't happen until you reach them. That's not fair. That's not right. But it is sort of reality. <laughs> yeah. No, I, and, and, and I guess one of the, the frustrating things is we never know when that jolt will come. Mm-hmm. And we, 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 and I think it's also easy to feel like we live in such a, a polarized political environment that that often many of us feel like we have the responsibility to speak up at family dinner or wherever it is when people are saying things that are um, hurtful or um, violent against communities, people of color, LGBT community, does you know, um, whoever it may be. Mm-hmm. And I think I think speaking up in order to to make sure that those comments don't go unchallenged is one thing, but thinking that they're going to lead to the kinds of getting around the mental wall as the, as the question uh, put it, I don't think that's, that's when it happens. I'm, right. I, uh, so, it, you know, I, I think that's hard. That's a hard lesson to learn is that if somebody says offen- something offensive about a minority group or a marginalized group and you, you call them on it, that's great. And don't get me wrong. You should do that. Okay. I, I, I'm not downgrading that. I'm saying, don't think that that's the moment when you're going to find a way around the wall because it's probably not. 
It's probably right. when they're going to put up every defense they have. Right. Um, right. Absolutely. And it's not something that you're not responsible for the pace of someone else's growth. Yep. At the same time, the other thing, like you absolutely have every right to your own sense of boundaries and everything else. Um, so if it's no longer viable for you to be in a relationship with that person, then absolutely set that boundary or say, this is off the table if you want to maintain a relationship with me, or this is table stakes um, in order to be in a relationship with me. Like all those things, those it's a complicated question um, when it comes to interpersonal relationships, but I totally agree with you. It's not something that is always going to be, you're not going to see it right away. But going back to, you know, uh, religious language, maybe you're planting a seed that someone else, yep, that's right. <laughs> that, that someone that, else will reap, you know? <laughs> I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the other quick questions was uh, from the real Samo on Twitter was what are your thoughts on the religious revival being led by Sean Fucht, uh, a controversial figure who keeps popping up uh, in these supposed counter protests at Black Lives Matter events and things like that. I would reference, uh, I would ask folks to go read a, a great article. I'm not sure if you've read this one, Blake, by D.L. Mayfield at Religion News Service. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, in that article, Mayfield talks about how the day I, I realized I was no longer an evangelical was at one of the rallies led by Sean Fucht. And Mayfield goes through this great, great narration of how uh, Sean Fuchs shows up in Portland, starts doing what Sean Fuchs does, which is leading a massive singing rally. They're singing worship songs in places where there have been protests, where there have been, um, you know, where there have been uprisings. Mm -hmm. And the way that Mayfield puts it is, I knew all the songs, but I couldn't sing because it became so apparent to me in that moment that what was happening is Sean Fucht and his people were showing up to places where there was hurt, where there was vulnerability, where there was pain. And instead of listening to the shouts and the cries of people of color, of marginalized groups, of those who had been uh, brutalized or hurt, those that were asking for change, instead of listening, they were singing over them. They had no interest in what they had to say no interest in forming, as you said, Blake, that evangelical word of a relationship, no interest in empathizing with their situation so they might come to understand it a little bit better. The goal was, we're gonna sh and sing over you. And I think Fucht is, is pretty opportunistic in this sense. I think that it's a way to, it's a classic evangelical move to say, we're gonna rally to help bring the nation back to God and, and, and instill healing. And in reality, what you're doing is just talking over everybody. It's not that different from Mike Pence on the debate stage, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good analogy. The inherent disrespect is palpable. I don't really have anything nice to say about, <laughs> about any of this. So, I mean, it's, it is, again, as you said, very opportunistic. It's very, it's for the Facebook likes. It's damaging. It's reckless in the face of the pandemic, um, it's all shenanigans. <laughs> well, well you know, but, I, but you know, if we go back to that question about younger evangelicals, right? Right. Somebody might say, oh, isn't Sean Fuchs one of the, 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 those leaders who's going to bring in the young evangelicals? And my response would be Sean Fuchs is a younger, uh, version of Mike Pence in the sense that he has 
long hair. He looks like a kind of surfer hippie guy, very attractive with his guitar, charismatic. And yet when you get below the surface, there's nothing different. There. I mean, Blake, when I, when I was an evangelical back, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I think of all the times people showed me young hip leaders with skinny jeans and a goatee. And they were like, they're going to change everything. They're different. And they weren't, they were not. There was a different sheen, mm-hmm. a different costume, but it was this, I mean, Sean Fuchs is showing up to sing over people. He's showing up to silence people, not to listen. I just see that as very similar to uh, what happens in, in white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism all over the country all the time. So I, I don't, I mean, may, may not being, I, you're right. I'm not being nice. I should probably just stop. But anyway, <laughs> that's my, so. <laughs> all right. We've got a, we've got a few more to round things out. What, another one from Twitter is from Wintling Jeff. Um, despite being an XV, which is short for exvangelical, still deconstructing. I'm still uh, stunned by white nationalist disregard and disdain for Jesus' basic teachings on humility, meekness, and charity. They've listened to our podcasts in regards to Jesus and John Wayne. Is it really just toxic ma- masculinity that accounts for this dismissal of of Jesus' teachings? So, um, as a as a scholar, I I, I never want to ever offer an explanation to say it's just one thing, right? It's mm-hmm. just this because mm-hmm. I, I always feel like it's it's a little bit reductive. Um, now. That's not to say that toxic masculinity is not a a huge part of that. The way I would put it, though, is that toxic masculinity is one vector Mm -hmm. for Christian nationalism. Um, And there's other vectors, but all of those vectors share an underlying desire for power and domination. So, yes, I I, I agree with you, Jeff, uh, who asked the question. The disregard for Jesus' basic teaching on humility, meekness, and charity is always jarring. I mean, I, I just read Matthew 5 through 7 with my students. Most of them had never read the Bible ever. Uh, um, and their comments were like, uh, Professor Onishi, I know a lot of Christians. They don't seem to share the values I found in Matthew 5 through 7. <laughs> Which is not and, not too different from Gandhi's famous reaction. <laughs> and that, and that exact, that's exactly what I told them. And, and mm-hmm. I guess my response to Jeff here is, um, it is stunning. It is jarring. It never It never gets any less jarring. And yet... Can understand this as toxic masculinity is a vector, uh, white supremacy, is, uh, American nationalism is a vector. Mm-hmm. What is the common denominator buttressing all of those? Domination and power. That is what we want. It is not about Jesus' teaching. It is not about compassion. It is not about uh, anything else except for domination and power. And so that leads to a multifaceted analysis of toxic masculinity, white supremacy, nationalism, so on and so forth as the ways that it's deployed. So anyway, I, I think that is what, that's what I would say in response to that. It's not just masculinity. Um, it's, it's a lot of things, but mm. those things do share a common foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's a yes and sort of thing. Yep. And with toxic masculinity, as with as with so many other elements of white evangelicalism, evangelicalism more broadly, it's not contained uh, within one particular manifestation. As you said, the vector is a very good uh, a very good metaphor for it. Um, 
that push towards power that goes way deep in America and the sorts of like the early understandings of the world that the initial colonialists had when they came to this land and began imposing themselves on the indigenous people and uh, everything that's happened since then. Uh, and a lot of it can be traced maybe to say like the great chain of being philosophy and in Europe uh, and the ways in which Within the great chain of being, it would say that royalty is um, just below angels and below royalty are regular people. And then as as time goes on, it gets ex- exceedingly racist. Uh, and then there's also other, you know, layers of, of animals and, the, and how they relate within the great chain of being uh, and this hierarchical view of the world. It manifests, but it, it's it's all gotten super complicated and twisted in on itself here. Uh, within our time here on earth and it the end result is not pretty yeah it, I, I agree and I, I think uh, the, the idea of hierarchy is important here you know and and if there's anything that white nationalists if there's anything that Christian nationalists if there's anything that uh, misogynists love even if they won't admit it it's hierarchy they want to be at the top of a hierarchy and that they feel that's their right and their privilege and they don't want to give that up and so uh, they will use the mantle of Christianity, humility, meekness, and charity mm-hmm. in order to get, get that power and retain it. That's that, that to me is, is, is the easiest way to understand this. Yeah. Well, we've got, I think one final question, unless you have any other ones and it's a, it's a two-parter. And I think the, the final question might be a, a really good one to sort of, sort of go out on here. Um, the, the first part of this question is I'm really struggling with, this is from Jeff via email. Um, another Jeff. <laughs> I'm really struggling with how the Christian nationalist value system has impacted our understanding of justice and how it's currently empowering the Blue Lives Matter movement. Uh, the second question is, maybe it's just me being hopeful, but it feels like the Christian nationalist worldview is generational. Is this going to die out in a decade or two? So let's take that first part first and talk about how Christian nationalist values enable things like the blue lives matter movement well okay so one of the one of the verses or the the themes that gets thrown around a lot is romans 13 which is abide by the law uh robert jeffress said last, last week that disobeying or running from the police is akin to disobeying or running from god okay why 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 would you have that kind of view of the world and it's everything we just talked about with the previous question is if you understand yourself to be the the rightful pinnacle of a social cultural racial religious hierarchy if to be a white straight christian who abides by a patriarchal system what you want and if that is what this country has had for how many years we if we could go back to 1770 but we should probably go back to 1619. Mm-hmm. If that is what we have had for that long, then your side, your your way of, of maintaining it is going to be those who can enforce power and enforce uh, the boundaries. Well, that happens to be in this, in this country, the police. And so of, to me, it makes perfect sense that if you're a white, straight Christian nationalist who abides by a patriarchy, and you, you are hearkening back to a landowning gentry in the antebellum agrarian uh, society called the United States, then of course you're with Blue Lives Matter because they're the ones that are gonna enforce and protect 
your place at the pinnacle of that, that hierarchy. Uh, I, I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if, if people um, sort of can, can see it through that lens, but uh, to me, there's a very clear, there's a cl very clear relationship. And then going back even further, you know, something my co-host Dan says a lot is since Constantine, unfortunately, most of, not all, not by any means, any reductive thing here, but a predominant form of Christianity has been on the side of empire, mm -hmm. it's been on the side of empire. If you think of the United States, unfortunately, as a crumbling empire, it makes sense that those who are trying to hold on to power would be with the, uh, the enforcers and uh, they would side with them. And so anyway, I think that makes sense. I think it, uh, there's no surprise there for me. And uh, there's a direct correlation between Christian nationalism and Blue Lives Matter. It's a, it's, mm -hmm. it's a pretty intimate yeah, thing. Yeah. I don't have any anything to add to that. I, I think that that is very well said. What about the second part in regards to this being generational and whether something like Christian nationalism could actually die out as a sort of ideology? I, I think we really need to be careful. Um, I think every generation in this country has thought that that might be a possibility. So if I go back to the election of Barack Obama, okay, uh, you know, I've told the story in our podcast before, Blake, but, you know, the election night of Barack Obama, um, I, very weird and circumstances, I was on a first date while watching the election night, which was, oh, wow. I, I don't, I, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, a, it was just a great episode of the foolishness that is me oftentimes. And so... <laughs> Um, Barack Obama gets elected. He comes out on stage and I cannot keep it together. I mean, I am weeping through my face. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, you know, when you weep, it's not just from your eyes. It's like your nose and your mouth and your ears ostensibly are just all, <laughs> all crying at the same time. Well, that's what I was doing, right? Why? Because it felt like we had broke through to something that was unimaginable. We broke through to a place where this biracial man with an immigrant father walks out on stage in Chicago, you know, near your home, near your home, Blake, with, with his black wife and his black children. Mm -hmm. I mean, who thought this was possible? Mm -hmm. Wow. What are the, where are we going to head in yeah. my lifetime when it comes to this country and its leadership, this country and its ethos, this country and its culture. And what happens soon thereafter, we have the tea party soon thereafter we have Donald Trump. And so for me to sit here and say that there's any chance of this dying out would seem irresponsible. Um, it might, it might, we might see in Kamala Harris, a biracial woman, uh, early interfaith family, the future of America. But you know what? People, we've been saying that for how long? Looking at young people of color, young queer people, young non-Christian people, young atheists, nuns, secular, Whoever it is, we've been saying, you're the future of America, and they are. I'm not saying they're not. All of those folks are the future of this country. And yet, here we are with Donald Trump as president, and we all had to watch Mike Pence on the stage last night. That is not going away. It's not a matter of fate or destiny. It's a matter of action and organization. Yeah. The only way it's going to die out is organization and action. There are more of us than them, period. But it's not going to happen because it's destined to. It's going to happen because we fight tooth and nail to make it happen. Coming from this, from being a, being a white man here in America, it's, it's hard to be completely optimistic without, without being informed by the last several years. 
And you're right. Like it didn't go, it wasn't, it didn't begin just with the election of Trump. Um, it goes back to yep. like McConnell turning the, the Republican party into the party of no, uh, and successfully doing that. And by them being able to, to work so successfully in activating and enraging white grievance. Um, and there's a lot of soul searching that just a lot of people need in order for white America to participate in the future of America. They need to be able to look at American history, look at the present of America and be able to see themselves racially in the way that everyone else that that isn't white or hasn't been made yeah. white has been seen and to reckon with that like we see glimpses of it glimpses of that capacity but when one of our one of our two major parties is not interested in in encouraging the better the better angels of our nature and are much rather oriented towards keeping people angry over things rooted in racism and Christian nationalism. It's hard to believe that it it will just disappear um, because these things are so entrenched in not just our politics, but also in our religion. Um, And I'm encouraged by books like White Too Long that dive into this. But nonetheless, there's a, a lot of work ahead of us. And as people like myself who who are white uh, and need to reckon with this personally and socially, as well as just not standing in the way of other people achieving equality here in the United States. Such a powerful question to sort of <laughs> to end things on, and I know you're also uh, running out of time here. Um, Brad, I want to thank you so much for talking through these things with me. Um, and, yeah. and sharing your thoughts on these very good questions about Christian nationalism and and this moment here in America. Where can people find your work online? Where can they find your podcast and anything else you might be involved in? Yeah, thank, well, first, thanks for having me, Blake. And just looking at the folks who've been on Powers and Principalities, I feel just incredibly honored and flattered to even uh, just be here with you. So thanks for, for having me. And thanks for everyone for the, the questions. I mean, uh, incredible important questions, uh, not ones that have probably definitive answers, but uh, it, it really appreciate the chance to discuss all of this. So uh, you can find me at Bradley Onishi on Twitter. Uh, my podcast is Straight White American Jesus. And, um, we, uh, we record a weekly roundup on Fridays and we do uh, interviews and, and other series usually on Tuesdays. And uh, kind of excited to announce we're just uh, rolling out our website. So straightwhiteamericanjesus.com is uh, up and running. And you can go there and find our show, find uh, blog posts, find um, uh, transcripts, information of, of the folks we've interviewed, all kinds of stuff like that. So um, check that out. And um, anyway, thanks, Blake, for having me. And I, I really hope we can we can partner uh, as, uh, as soon as, and as, uh, as often as possible. Excellent. Brad, thank you so much. And everybody who is listening, please go uh, check out and subscribe to Straight White American Jesus if you have enjoyed this show it's going to be right up your alley because they, they've talked to many of the same people and also incorporate, as Brad mentioned, a lot of um, a lot of more direct news discussions and things like that. It is a wonderful resource. Please check it out. Brad, thanks again for joining me. Thank you, Blake. Thanks for having me.
That'll do it for this week's episode. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. The theme music is by Dave Lefevre and Jake Lewis. A special thank you also again to Jake Lewis for recommending the very idea of this podcast, this particular episode. And it was just wonderful and a great opportunity to have this discussion with someone like Brad. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and view Power and Some Principalities on Apple Podcasts and let others know about the show. You can also support the show via those that subscription to the Post Evangelical Post over at postevangelicalpost.com. All right. Talk to you soon.